Good evening and thank you for coming. Um, this is the fullest house we've had after the opening and I suppose Chan and Sunil are a big draw. Um, welcome to Corridors of Power. For those of you who have come before, you know what the exhibition is about. My name is Sanjana Hattatua. I am a senior researcher at the Center for Policy Alternatives and also the editor of groundviews.org, a civic media platform. This exhibition is my vision and I curated it and I'm ecstatic that Channa Dasvatta, uh, a key collaborator in this exercise, is going to deliver the, the keynote this evening. Channa, as I discovered today, in preparation for my curator's guide that started at four o'clock, first started exchanging emails with me on this, Channa, I, I just discovered it today, uh, on the 25th of February, guess when? 2014. I was absolutely shocked because when you're involved in a project of this nature, you think that um, it's actually a much shorter collaboration. I actually thought it was about a nine months since, nine or ten months when Asanga Chan and I had been in touch with each other. But our first ideas was, uh, was well over a year ago. And uh, the, at the time that we started talking about this idea, obviously uh, there was absolutely no hint of the 19th Amendment. Uh, even on the horizon, and as you can imagine, not even a hint of what transpired on the 8th of January. Um, I'm also extremely pleased that Sunila is joining us uh, on stage, because this exhibition is a culmination of a journey that I began with Asanga that started with Sunila. Uh, about two or three years ago, I asked Asanga, the same person who uh, created the research for this project, to look into the 18th Amendment, uh, after it was passed in 2010, late 2010, and I got Sunela to interpret it through architecture and art, but Sunela being a natural artist as well, did a diptych that looked at the 18th Amendment in a very interesting way. Uh, by the way, for those of you who come late, there's, uh, there's also Paduru on this side, so you can just lay out a mat and then sit on the floor if you want. Uh, and there are chairs in front. I know the proclivity of Sri Lankan audience is never to inhabit the spaces in front but there are free chairs in the front. So um, that was with Sunila, and also Asanga did something with me again with a very young graphics designer called Shanika, uh, that about uh, two years ago, commemorating the events of Black July, the pogrom of uh, July 1983, uh, looked at through infographics, uh, uh, the, the, the key points in Sri Lanka's constitutional evolution, uh, Asanga wrote, whether that point contributed to or was uh, architected against the uh, ethnopolitical violence, so whether, for example, the 13th Amendment or the 18th Amendment actually exacerbated existing tensions or uh, served to um, address them. Uh, and what Chanika did was to express them visually through, uh, through infographics. And then we come to Corridors of Power, which is this exhibition. I'm very, very sorry that the catalogs have run out. We have ordered more, so if you come tomorrow, hopefully we should have more. But they're also online, you know. Uh, the PDF is online. Uh, the catalog is uh, a, a wonderful entry point uh, into this, this exhibition. The exhibition is quite unique to the extent that Channa Asang and I know of. If you have spent some time going around the room, simply because of the fact that the buildings, the edifices, the physical artifact, the physical construct that you see around here 
is not some building that was conjured up arbitrarily. The corridors, the windows, the structures, the pillars, the beams, the roof, the nature of the rooms, the length of the corridors, the staircases, the height of the staircases, every single element and artifact is a representation of the power enshrined in that particular constitution or constitutional amendment. Uh, and this has never been done before. Uh, so what you see here is both a spatial and visual reflection and interpretation of the power essentially put between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. And that has been China's genius uh, in visualizing and Asanga's incredible intellect in conceptualizing in terms of his original research. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Every day, this exhibition opens at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's completely free. Um, it, uh, every day at 5.30, we'll have a public talk or a panel discussion like this, again, completely free. It runs up till the 22nd of September. I have just two anecdotes to share, and bear with me for this. On opening night, there was a gentleman who was severely vision impaired, almost legally blind, and he came with a member of his family. Uh, and I suppose as a consequence of being blind, what you touch, the tactile feedback that you get as a consequence of what you touch and feel, allows you to spatially construct in your mind's eye something that we would struggle. So this person had, uh, with, that, with the aid of that family member, uh, touched each of those models, uh, the 72 Constitution, the 78 Constitution, the 13th Amendment, and the 18th Amendment, uh, very carefully, obviously. Uh, and without being able to see any of the drawings or the writing, had understood at the end of it that the 18th Amendment was completely unviable. Uh, a legally uh, 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 blind person, almost uh, a severely vision impaired person, simply by touching the models that uh, Channa created. Uh, day before yesterday, there was um, a mother who I think as a consequence of uh, not being able to leave her 12-year-old at home, who came with her, with her son. Uh, and the son, well, I caught him when he was enthralled with the 13th Amendment, the building there. And I went up to him and he was so enthralled by it that he wanted to visualize it as uh, what you call an FPS, a first-person shooter, like Doom or Castle Wolfenstein for those gamers amongst you. Uh, and he thought of the corridors as being able, uh, you know, if you could, uh, you know, do it as a computer game, being, you know, shooting people through the corridors and going up and down and all the rest of it. Uh, and then we got into a conversation about pa, basically, about how his mother forced him to eat vegetables, uh, how he had to share a, a, a room and space with his sister because he didn't really want to do it. Uh, how he thought that actually access to his room should be barred from his parents a bit more because they were a bit too intrusive. Uh, and he, how he thought, for example, how the pets and the dogs should have a bit more free access. And we, we started talking about spatial recognition to the understanding even of a 20-year-old of space is quite, quite, quite interesting. And then I talked about the Constitution. I said, do you know what a Constitution is? And he said he didn't know. So we talked about pa. And we talked about, I, I related it to his mother, the dog, his sister. And then when we came to the 18th, I said, this looks really cool, doesn't it? And he said, yeah, it looks like Apple's HQ. So Apple is building a new headquarters in Cupertino that looks just like that superstructure of the 18th Amendment. I said, yeah, it looks really cool. But I said, do you think, for example, that if Apple's headquarters, which you think is very cool, was put on top of your mom's house, 
would it last? And he thought about it for a second and said, no, it will crumble to the ground. And I said, do you know what that represents? I said, that represents the power that uh, the president of the day wanted to bring about. And he said, that's not going to work, is it? So if my submission to you is, if a 12-year-old and uh, a severely vision-impaired person, as a consequence of engaging with what is around us, could ascertain that these structures were unviable, we take our minds back to late 2010, and we should all ask ourselves the simple question as to why most of us were silent about that heinous amendment that was passed. And the exhibition ends at the 19th Amendment, completely coincidentally, uh, because when we started off talking about this, as I said, there was no 19th Amendment in sight, and again, completely coincidentally, today, as we speak, we are at a historical juncture where our Prime Minister says that we are now going to embark upon a new process of constitution making. What that will be, the contours of it, for those of you who came to listen to Jayanpati Vikramaratna uh, on the second day of the exhibition, you will know more about, and I think that through the media you will discover more about as the weeks and months go on. Uh, we know, broadly speaking, that they want to create a new constitution and it will be very different to uh, what we have perhaps engaged with in the past. So the desire is there. And I suppose what we must ask ourselves as a consequence of engaging with 43 years, 43 years from that corner to this corner of constitutional evolution in this country is whether we should be subject to and hostage to uh, the same kind of uh, uh, flaws, the same kind of ego-driven constitution making that we have been uh, a hostage to, and may I, dare I say, even silently accepted in the past. Uh, so those are some of the questions that the panels and the keynotes will address throughout the course of the week. And as I said, I'm very, very pleased to have Chandadaswatta, who needs no introduction, really. Uh, and when I was talking about this panel with the two of them, I, I wanted to address the, the, the more traditional, I suppose, question about architecture and power. Uh, there was an award-winning architect, Haid, who designed um, uh, this building in a, in a country, uh, and it was very problematic for many because here was a visually stunning building uh, in, a, in, a, in a country that had a dictatorship. Um, and the relationship in architecture and power, rights and responsibilities, is also framed in the, uh, at the end of my curator's note. We have all gone through a process of beautification, uh, or are going through a process of beautification. Colombo was being beautified. Uh, and the, 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 the flip side to that was also not very well known. Architects have a central role to play uh, in uh, society and, and, and politics, absolutely central. Architects as a profession and the, arch the profession of architecture, but I would also submit to you that all of us as architects of our future as well. And these are some of the questions that I wanted Chandna to address in, uh, in this suitably uh, long and important sounding uh, title, the Chiaroscuro Pa, the role of architecture in hegemony and change. Uh, Chandna, I'm very pleased that uh, you're here, and may I kindly invite you to give your keynote. Thank you for um, all those wonderful things. I think the best things about the exhibition have already been said, and I really don't know how much more I can say. Um, on the first day of the exhibition, um, a young gentleman came up to me and said, really, I mean, I came to see the drawings, but I'm not interested in politics. 
And my response was, but you are the politics. I mean, do you know what the meaning of politics is? It's the, it's the science of people, and you are one of them. And unless you sort of are not one of them, you can't not be in, involved in politics. And I do hope that, as Sanjana said, uh, our efforts here, however inadequate, and I can, I, I, I've already seen so many flaws in it, um, uh, uh, would actually begin to, to, to start a dialogue uh, about what might be uh, in the future of our country. Sanjana being Sanjana, of course, has sort of foisted me with an extraordinarily long uh, topic. Um, the meaning of two of the words, which I didn't know, really know until a friend of mine, I kind of went and said uh, something or other, and I mentioned the topic to him, and he, he laughed and said, look, if you want to speak about such things, you better start uh, learning to pronounce the words properly. So it's the chiaroscuro, he said, of power, the role of architecture in hegemony and change. I always thought it was hegemony for some reason. So um, what I'm going to talk about today, and perhaps Sunila would, uh, would, would begin to respond at some point, uh, is really not so much about what is on the walls around us, but generally uh, my understanding of what architecture has had to do with power and what architecture has to do with power uh, in generally in the history of the world and society. The, these are perhaps some of the most iconic and most beautiful buildings that we all admire. Over the years, you sort of see them in pictures, that's the Parthenon in Athens, beautifully floodlit at night, and we look at, look at it and say how magnificent the proportions are, how gorgeous uh, each thing would be, and then we are all sort of crying out about the marbles that were on the triangular bit on the left-hand side, uh, which we all want reinstated in its place, because it is one of the great buildings of the ancient world. That's the Pantheon in the middle of Rome, built around the fourth century by Agrippa, but actually he didn't build it. Someone else built it. Uh, he claimed it for himself. Again, a magnificent building. Uh, when you walk into it, you just, you know, your, your mouth drops. The Colosseum, something that there are such long crowds that go around to get into it. Everybody wants to see it, wants to understand what's going on in these incredible buildings. Sigiriya, crowds of people walk up these. I mean, this is not normal nowadays to see an empty garden because it's usually full of people going up to see this extraordinary piece of architecture and planning that we have just up the road from us. The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, anyone who's been there, Again, it's jaw-dropping as you walk into the interior of this space. These are some of the greatest buildings that mankind has actually made. This is Gangai Kondachalapuram, just um, east of Tanjore, um, built by one of the great Chola kings, and of course, the Sun King's Palace in Versailles. Now, when we think of all these things, we only look at their beauty and their extraordinary presence in the history of the artifacts of man. But all of them also have one other sort of common thing. Almost all of them have the people know who the architects were. The architects were actually named in almost all of these. And really what it's about, what I'd like to sort of present to you, is to try and bring up this idea that, in fact, architecture cannot escape being a means by which power is consolidated in the hands of different people. The simplest thing about architecture, simplest act of making architecture, 
is really about making... Uh, of course, in later years, you find these rather lovely buildings. Um, this is the, um, the, the uh, Sullivan's uh, Prudential Insurance Building, one of the first tall buildings ever built in the world. This is in Chicago. And this gorgeous sort of Seagram Tower in New York, uh, which, uh, which we all, again, uh, Mies van der Rohe, and we sort of look at it and say how magnificent the whole thing is. And this is this fantastic work by uh, Zaha Hadid, which won the World Architecture Award some years ago uh, in Baku in Azerbaijan. Uh, extraordinary piece of work, uh, contemporary architecture that, um, you know, flies in the face of logic because it says, how is that possible? But it is possible and some person thought about it and made this extraordinary structure. Now, going back to this idea that what is it that architecture does, the simple thing that architecture does, the, most, the simplest thing that architecture does, is to actually create a simple boundary, uh, simply like that. The first act of architecture is basically to create a boundary. You create a boundary between the people or the persons that are not part of you and those who are part of you. It separates a space into two. One is the outside and one is the inside. Bounded by the boundary is the inside and the rest of it is outside. But you also have to have a way in which you can get into it. In all architecture, you can get into, some, in, into these spaces. And by creating this very simple form, you're creating a matrix of power. The very basic act of making architecture is about creating a matrix of power, which is where if you're deep in the structure, away from the entrance, you have either more or less power. If you're by the entrance, you either have more or less power. If you're left or right of the, of the space, you have more or less power. So by simply making the first move in architecture, it is really about power. It's about creating power relations between the people who occupy it, the people who are admitted into it or not admitted into it, and so on and so forth. So architecture really cannot escape being something that is to do with power. So if you look at all those buildings again, you'll begin to see that the Parthenon, again, a very elegant building on that side, had a very, very simple plan. It was really about the power of Pericles, the man who sort of united Athens against the Persians and actually won against them. It's actually a treasury to hold the wealth of Athens and control it in the, arms, in the hands of a few. Although it certainly was a democracy at the time, you begin to see that Pericles was beginning to become a dictator at that point. So one of the most gorgeous buildings of the ancient world is actually, or has actually been built in the service of power. So here you have the plan below you, the treasury at the back, the great temple to Athena uh, coming in from the right-hand side, and really it was an object of power. And over the years it has been contested over by so many people, and for 2,000 years it still stood there, first as a, as a temple to Athena, then a, a, a church to Mary, and became a mosque, and then during the, uh, uh, the, the I think the Greek-Ottoman Wars, um, it was blown up, it lost its roof, and of course, now the battle, of course, of the marble still goes on. That's the Pantheon, this incredible space that was built to again um, celebrate the power of the Emperor of Rome. This one single fabulous dome, the largest dome in, 
in, the, in, 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 the, in its period, with this incredible oculus bringing in a shaft of light, was also really about power. What you see on top, of course, is Roman. The lower area is mostly sort of after the Renaissance, which is all added up uh, to make it even more glamorous. And again, you see the plan, a very simple circle, as you come in, who's admitted and who's not admitted becomes a power exercise and a power game. Zeus was right at the end, the grand god, and then the other gods arrayed on the two sides, depending on the power and the importance of each of them. So architecture was really about articulating power. This is what I'm going to keep showing you. Uh, Colosseum, an extraordinary piece of power architecture, uh, where all the people of Rome would gather on the terraces around in the, in the plan below, and the emperor would turn up from one of the ends, and you would know who the ruler was. Although it was a circle, there was a possibility of uh, uh, making uh, one person greater than the others. In Siguria itself, if you look at the plans, you begin to see that all the axes con uh, conclude on the rock, and the rock is where the king stood. And really, it was a machine about making one person important and grander than everybody else. The Hagia Sophia, this was built by Justinian uh, to replace a church that would, had been burnt down by uh, one of the uh, famous riot that had taken just before him. And when he decided to build this, it was really about telling everybody he had crushed in that revolution who was king. And here, amidst, the, amidst all the sort of magnificent gold mosaic, the, and, and I can quite imagine a, a service of the Eastern Orthodox Church taking place here with clouds of smoke and everything else, the emperor would appear in state to show the people who was king. And in an in incredible space like that, you could, I mean, who could help but believe that it was God himself who was down there waiting to uh, uh, receive you or give you his blessing. So in a sense, uh, a building that was created, and, 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 and this, the incredible thing was how you managed to get a dome that big to appear as though it was floating by simply having those windows right on top. And the architect was through that process be able to design something that Justinian was able to claim and say, well, the dome actually hangs from golden chains from heaven, he said. That's what I've been able to achieve for you. So the Hagia Sophia, fabulous building to all of us, was actually again a machine for power, a machine by which the emperor could uh, work out his power. Here it is, the sections and elevations of the building, which shows how uh, the, the, the people would enter at a very low little height, and then you come into this incredible space, and the emperor would be placed at some point in the middle of it, and there you would sort of just bow down before the power that the architecture was able to show you. Gangai Konda Cholapuram was built, it's a magnificent Chola edifice, was built by um, uh, Rajendra Chola, or Raja Raja Chola, after he finally managed to conquer uh, right up to the Ganges, when the Chola Empire spread eventually to the Ganges, he sort of said, I shall build a temple to commemorate this and my power, and built Gangai Konda Cholapuram, which says, it is the temple of the Chola who conquered the Ganges. And this incredible structure is built uh, as a temple to the gods, but as a mark of the power and prestige of the emperor. And then, of course, we come to the Palace of the Sun King, um, Versailles, one of the grandest power machines of all time, where the, the king sort of usually placed in the center of this 
this, uh, this whole sort of structure of garden and, and city uh, could any, be, be, be nothing but uh, the Sun King himself. Right in the center of the courtyard is a grand statue of Louis XIV uh, and, 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 that, that, and everything, all the grand axes, this huge space comes in to this one point which is occupied by the king and the emperor. And if you look at the plan, it's quite extraordinary. Of course, a lot of plans for power have taken off from this. Uh, even Washington DC, uh, uh, New Delhi, all of them have this kind of plan with these sort of grand axes that conclude at important points. For instance, if you look at the plan of DC, you have these cross axes and the grand axes of the mall that conclude in the, in the capital and so on. So this kind of layout always went in, and right in the heart of this layout, it's really quite tiny when you look at it. That's the palace, which you saw in the picture below, and that's the rest of the, uh, the, the landscape, which was ordered with the power of the king. So architecture constantly uh, was used to emulate power, and architects were always servants to this idea. Because as I said in the beginning, the very act of making a boundary is about making a game of power, about creating a matrix of power. Of course, architecture also has, has overtly pay, paid uh, um, uh, um, uh, service, had, has done service to, um, to great despots. In fact, some of their ideas were promoted through specific pieces of architecture. And of course, one of the grandest cases in point is what the architect Albert Speer did for Hitler in the Third Reich. This is the Nuremberg Stadium in which he held some of his grandest sort of parades. In fact, if you look at it as it is, and this is a photograph soon after the fall of the Nazis, it's just a backdrop, it's a stage set to a whole lot of drama that he enacted with lights and searchlights and a whole lot of stuff. So Albert Speer was not only an architect of, of the buildings, but he was actually a creator of a grand stage set. And many architects are that, and some of us do have to get into this idea that you do a whole lot of stuff to create a sense of power, to project a sense of power. And the Nuremberg Stadium, if you look at it, it's almost like a cardboard box. But if you look at some of the films that were made by the Third Reich at the time, they look quite extraordinary. I mean, if you sort of look at them with the eyes of, you know, colored by the idea of, of, of Nazism, uh, you probably sort of think this, how horrible it is. But if you really look at it purely for its aesthetic, it's quite extraordinary. And you think, my God, this is, this is somebody who's actually known what to do. And it did exactly what it was supposed to do to make this quite diminutive little man, no higher than me, I think, into one of the grandest people that ever lived and one of the, one of the greatest despots that ever lived, just simply by surrounding him with a, with a whole series of bits of architecture. So Speer, of course, went on to do a whole lot of buildings. That's one of the other buildings that had been designed is the back of the Nuremberg Stadium. And a whole lot of other buildings in and around Berlin, um, which promoted the idea of power. And again, they also took a lot of symbolism from ancient Rome. You'll see that there's a lot of classical ideals that have come up into this. The columns are classical, uh, the pediments are classical, and so on. And, um, and, 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 and there's a sort of grandeur to it. And also the references that were made to imperial Rome are quite obvious. Of course, if he had his way, Hitler was going to also build that one. 
the this is this this is going to be this was going to be the Reichstag. You kind of if any of you have been to Berlin, what you see on the left-hand corner is the Brandenburg Gate. So you can quite imagine how huge this thing was going to be. It was going to be the greatest dome ever built in the history of mankind. And that was going to be where the, the Congress of the people would meet uh, to decide on the future of the thousand-year Reich. Now, of course, if you built something like this, uh, you truly believed that there was no way that any government that built it would fall. And if you look at the inside, that's what it was going to be. What you see at the bottom are the people, and what you see up there is a copy, of course, of the Pantheon, or inspired by the Pantheon in Rome. But just imagine the scale of the construction that might have taken place had Hitler, uh, had Churchill not been born, or, or, the, or the Allies not sort of got together and tried to stop them from going any further. So this was one of the cases. The other case, of course, was in the case of Mussolini. This is the Foro, Foro, Foro Italico, which is a sort of uh, uh, um, a stadium which he built, where he believed that sort of young Italians could be made into these glamorous creatures that you see uh, carved in, 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 in marble. And they were sort of made to train in this stadium so that you would sort of present the new Italian uh, in, in his uh, fascist uh, uh, fascist regime. And of course, he spread this whole idea to North Africa, and, uh, and, 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 and certainly in a recent visit to Sicily, we saw a post office, which was the most extraordinary post office I had ever seen. Uh, unfortunately, I can't share a picture with you. But of course, Mussolini went on to have a whole lot of other buildings built, very austere, very rigid, very grand, and very strong. And his architects were asked to create these Bits, of bits and pieces of work which was going to celebrate the power that Mussolini and his uh, government had. Now, architecture also serves other sort of uh, dictatorships and other hegemonies um, in different ways. And you begin to see that some of the ideas that we have seen in the pictures that I just showed you are reflected in this one, for instance, which is the design of Sir John Soane for the Bank of England. And the Bank of England, which was set up in the 1800s, was in a lot of ways the beginning of the end of individual enterprise. You begin to find that economics began to be controlled by something like the bank. And while John Soane was very happy to build this incredible building. Again, look at the scale of it. The power of money is seen in, in these buildings. Um, John Soane, at some point, before he even built the Bank of England or got involved in its building, did another very interesting, got his, got his draftsman, a man called Gandhi, to draw this incredible building, which is the building he was going to design drawn as a ruin. Perhaps he was trying to say something about what he was about to do. Was he going to sort of eventually ruin the lives of a lot of people by having such a, such a powerful object uh, rule over their economic uh, uh, ideas? So that's an incredible representation of drawn of, of, of a building that was about to be built. So he probably had some ideas about what architecture could do to a society. 
So architecture is very, very powerful in that way, and this kind of sort of service of money has also been one of the things that us architects do, and you find, again, these two buildings, um, all to do with the power of money and what architecture was able to do to increase its presence in, in any given society. Now, hegemony is something that architects are very good at, being powerful, being keeping people powerful. And that's something that we have always done and that we are almost obliged to do. Now about change, I mean, how can you make change through architecture? And I think when Sunela and I spoke earlier, we sort of racked our brains to think of any one building that might have sort of brought about change. I found it very difficult to, 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 to pinpoint anything. But I can think of one thing. If you go back again to this idea that really architecture is about creating a simple space. And if different groups of people begin to congregate so that each of them could have their own identity but also be able to support each other in some simple way, they might even gather into little, little communities like this. Each a single cell, each, each sort of creating his own power game but also connected to each other so that they could then cooperate with each other to create a powerful whole. Interdependence. So a simple thing where there is a matrix of power within, but as they get connected, they become interdependent and they become recognizable wholes. Now, and, 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 and these things would lead to real structures like that. These are sort of... Uh, 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 there's an urban scape from the Middle East, and that's something from Africa, and of course in Yemen, and uh, this is of course in Greece. Uh, all of these have a certain democracy to the way that you can actually begin to use the space, because people have made it themselves, architects have never been involved in these, and they're a sort of architecture that comes from the ground up, to create objects that are going to be quite recognizable and often very identifiable as something, uh, as, as an organism that somehow cooperates with each other uh, to work. So that kind of planning, that kind of architecture often gives people the freedom to be an individual and get to the next stage. Now, those can get into little plans like that, into villages that become like that and perhaps into much larger cities. Now, one piece of architecture that I can think of that probably helped in a revolution is perhaps the plan of Paris. The plan of Paris before the revolution did not have the grand boulevards that all of us are now familiar with. It was just a series of an amalgamation of the kind of little structure that I showed you, as all cities were. Even the city of London was very much like this, and it still is like this. If you look at the city itself, it's very much like this and is like this with higgledy-piggledy bits of street uh, going any old how, people come in and out of those places, go down the roads to get their milk, and so on and so forth. And the one attempt that um, Christopher Wren made to straighten out the streets in London uh, was vehemently refused by the people. When the Great Fire happened in 1866, uh, Wren thought he could sort of, you know, be the architect. And while he was given the commission to build St. Paul's, he also thought, why not rearrange the city? 
So he tried to create those grand boulevards uh, across the city of London, and everybody protested, and people promptly went and built their houses exactly as they were, with the same twisted and turned streets that you find in the city of London to this day. Now, Paris was very much like that until the revolution. And one of the reasons that architects think that the revolution was perhaps a success was that the armies of the, 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 the king couldn't really reach large parts of the city, simply because there were tiny little spaces and so on. And of course, the first revolution happened and the first republic was set up. Very soon after, we find that the first republic was usurped and we had Napoleon take on uh, and became emperor and so on. And he continued until there was a revolt against him and a second republic was set up. And the second republic elected somebody who then decided to become king. His cousin, Napoleon III, decided he was going to be emperor. And he decided that one of the reasons, perhaps, that Paris couldn't be controlled is you couldn't get the Grand Army from the place it was at to all the corners of the city as fast as possible. So while the street grid of Paris pre-revolutions helped revolution, you find that people that you find that pretty early on, people recognize that that architecture of this kind, this kind that generates from people, individuals getting together to cooperate with each other, can become ways in which people could stand up against power. They recognize that, and he called this man called Baron Hausmann to come along and start changing the city in a way that you could control it in a, in, in, a, in a more effective manner. Now, this is a map, of course, which shows in yellow the places where barricades were built in the, during the Second Revolution um, that brought um, uh, 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 the, the, the Second Republic into being. Um, and you can begin to see that they actually block off certain areas uh, to the people, uh, to the army. And so they studied the locations of the barricades, and, and he got... Uh, and, 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 the, and Paris, of course, was very much like that during that time. Very sort of, as you said, higgledy-piggledy, rain, drains and this and that and everything going on. And they felt that this was really the reason that you couldn't control people and your revolution could happen. And what they did was to break through that city in the series of grand boulevards that we all admire now, of course. But it was done to control the people. It was done to put down dissent. It was put, done to put down revolution. Of course, an interesting after, afterthought, for uh, a footnote to this, of course, is that today, Paris is recognized for this fantastic set of boulevards, these beautiful spaces in which people can sit in their cafes and enjoy the people passing through and so on while they were originally done, although they were originally done for something terrible and to impose power on people. What it has also done is that while the Grand Army couldn't get, I mean, it was done to get, get the Grand Army from, from the center of the city to the peripheries and to the people who might revolt, what it does now is that, and that's what, what, that, that, that's what, that's what, um, what Hausmann did. Here's a sort of image of something that was done that was pre Hausmann, and this is what happened when he sort of broke through. You could see from one end of the city right to the other. But what it does now, of course, 
it brings the people from all corners of the city to the center of the city if it's necessary for a revolution. So what we saw earlier on last year were these incredible crowds of people walking down these grand boulevards as they sort of protested against the terrible happenings uh, in the Charlie Hebdo newspaper. And you saw this city work, the same boulevards that were used to suppress people begin to be used to bring people together in protest as they gathered in the Place de République. You can see those grand streets bringing people from the very outskirts of a city to come in uh, in, in solidarity uh, to, to, to voice their opinion about uh, a certain issues. So what I'm trying to say is while there is no direct architecture that you can think of as being, being useful for change, you begin to see things like this, particularly in cities and the way they're designed and the way they're, 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 they're intervened with as something that could, be, uh, uh, that could actually trigger change. So if you think about architecture, uh, Sudela, I think it's always been about power. And architects are stuck in this, this world of power. And how architects can be part of change is something that I think we need to think about uh, and, 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 and discuss. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Um, Channa, um, I think let's start with the, with the word that Sanjana has settled us with, chiaroscuro, and that, it's not on? Okay. Uh, so, and we have to pronounce this without even a glass of water besides us, but anyway, know, let's we'll, carry we'll on. Try, I yes. know, we, we shall try, um, So. I think, as you say, it's, you know, architects have tremendous control and that we are well aware of. But when, you, when it comes to hegemony and you have a very clear brief uh, to present something, and I think Albert Speer probably did it um, in the most brilliant fashion because it was just a complete facade to hide something quite hideous. And therein is that chiaroscuro. And I think, in a way, uh, everything that you have done, the sketches, uh, it's about the, the aesthetic of the facade that hides the shadows, right? So the well-lit exterior and the darkness and the shadows within. Um, and I suppose... Well, I think it's this idea that, you know, Sanjana sort of trying to get me to do ugly, but me kind of sort of not exactly. being able to do ugly. That's what I... Because as an architect, you don't. You, so in, in a sense, are we destined to hide? Exactly. Is that why it is used? Because it, you, you can hide ugliness with architecture. You can hide the most hideous things with architecture. It's the most obvious way of doing it. It's the most visible, right? It's, it's in your face. It's, it's not... Uh, it's way more powerful than, say, you know, um, uh, a sketch or something. And this is something that Ten, who, he, who's here, has lamented, saying, you know, you all do these things and get them drafted up, and then they're built. And here I'm spending hours at home drawing tiny <laughs> lines, right? So um, it's, a, it's a tremendously powerful tool. And I think every dictator does realize that. And just as we talked the other day, uh, not only dictators, anyone who's trying to um, present, uh, you know, uh, 
the power or the power they say present a face that they that are not them absolutely uh, architecture mean, is a great tool you will find that in in domestic architecture you know where you'd find a client who wants to uh tell the world that they've uh, you know it's a message this is who i am right and that they would then use an architect who better yeah i mean it's quite interesting that um, that you talk about the the idea of facade in domestic architecture where if you look at a lot of domestic architecture that's going on in sri lanka you begin to see the same sort of design elements that speer used with hitler absolutely and that's really really come on quite a bit in the yes. last few years if you look absolutely. at a whole lot of buildings that have been built recently yes vineyard with savinia and it's it's uh, um i suppose recognizing elements that have represented huge power before are being uh reused reused repeatedly so it's it's a very interesting uh, fact that it's recognized so fast that's true i mean i had i had a, i had a discussion with a student i mean he didn't come back to me after a bit but he was trying to talk about this idea of why is there a neo neo classicism in sri lanka coming up uh, and he kind of said from about 2010 and that was pretty interesting and he was keen to study why this was the case i mean for me it was a one liner yeah but uh, <laughs> as to why the what the cause was but um but it's interesting that that began to happen uh in 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 our recent past yes and i i think actually that's uh, probably something worth even studying because i mean you, you look at the parthenon and uh i don't know whether there was inspiration before that for the parthenon but thereafter uh you know dictator after dictator has used this uh, the same design and details details which is it's quite amazing right and and yeah, uh, that's an interesting point what you're yes. talking about is a building that we think came from the great democracy the great the the, the mother of democracy the yes. the very foundation yeah. of democracy um and as i pointed of course it's that's not true because it really was the beginnings of the athenian dictatorship yes but yes and the buildings that were built at that time were the ones that have been repeatedly used i mean look at rome picked it up from greece washington washington it, yes, the british yeah. empire everywhere they built yeah. their buildings of power they used the same details the same. to cover up yeah. essentially uh, uh, what what was really going on exactly and so it's actually um, fascinating because you, as you say that was the root of the athenian dictatorship and here was we don't even know whether that was the original whether there was one before yeah, that others, yeah. right uh, and then then you come to uh, the fact that this is democracy the the effort is to represent democracy uh but does it really do that it's it's just again that facade it's a chiaroscuro of uh, you know the light or the positive element of democracy which conceals the dictatorship within so uh, i think what we were also talking about the other day was um what is democratic architecture is it a commissioned um representation of democracy as um, defined by some individual or individuals who are tremendously powerful or is it that architecture which is uh designed by the people 
is it is it the um, structures that uh, come out higgledy piggledy as the yeah, the, the old cities yeah, and so I, on. I think in the end, a, a, democ a democratic architecture is one that allows the individual to be themselves. But as I said, you know, the first act of making architecture is a creation of a power matrix. Now, if you stop at that first point and then the, let the rest of it carry on, yes. then perhaps it becomes a democratic architecture. Yes. But us humans have this odd nature where we, where we want to sort of order things. We are always trying to order things. And architecture is used yeah. to order. It is used to order, but uh, again, while I was you know, listening to us, taking down notes, and what I uh, realized was uh, what I was wondering, and I mean, please comment if you disagree, but I, I think architects or whoever builds is only as powerful as they want to be or as they if they recognize it or choose to recognize how powerful they can be. So, you know, there is that as well. So the, say the person who's building his uh, little hut um, in, the, um, in the middle of a paddy field or, you know, in a field, he could just, you know, build something which is purely a shelter or he could perhaps, you know, make a little more effort and make something that stands out and then he becomes the most noticed farmer in the field. So how is he using that? Is he, so there is a choice there, there is democracy in that yeah, choice as well. The democracy, the, the choice of who they want to be and who they want to project yes. themselves to yes. be. Yes, and you know, whether it's uh, your commission to build for somebody else or whether you build it yourself, that choice still stands. Yes, that's true. I mean, the choice of getting an architect to project an image for you or, or, or project your own image. Yes, yes. The architect, of course, will bring their own baggage into it. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that's where a lot of these buildings come from, mm. where the architect has brought their baggage in and uh, created buildings that, uh, you know, also represent themselves and their sort of insecurities and otherwise uh, in, in the building. But, you know, then, then again we go back to what we were talking about earlier of um, the parliament building as it exists and what you have, you know, come up with the 1972 parliament structure and that roof we were talking of. And um, we, we talk of how it came about. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's really about this idea that if one, I mean, the, the premise of getting on with this project, I mean, if we, we get onto it now, uh, was that if I understood a constitution as being something that set up a series of relationships between different arms of governance, Architecture does a similar thing. It sets up relationships between spaces which allow people to either connect with each other, disconnect with each other, orient people, or disorient them. That's what architecture does. So if you sort of understood the relationships in a constitution, which I tried to from Asanga's note, you then try to create a series of spaces that represented those relationships. And then as I said, you then have to cover it. You have to make the space, to make a space you need to have a boundary. You make it beautiful. You to, no, no, you have to make the boundary. First, okay. Yeah. And as you make the boundary, you have to make choices about its beauty, yeah. about the material, and what you then react to. Are you reacting to the environment? Are you reacting to the climate? Are you reacting to culture? Now, 
you are asking me about the 1972 constitution and where I came up with what most people obviously interpret as Jeffrey Bauer's parliament roof. Uh, um, and I was thinking more in terms of the Kandyan roof and how yes. you arrived at it and Jeffrey Bauer arrived uh, Exactly. At it. So yes. essentially, uh, one looked at it in, in two ways. One is the climate. And in a tropical climate, it's necessary to shed the rain. So you do have a sloping roof. Um, the double slope comes for various reasons, um, as in Kandy. The central space was enclosed, uh, was, was sheltered by a steeper roof than the veranda spaces. So that there was a quite distinct difference uh, that demarcated different kinds of space. In this case, it is similar, the central presidential space or the space in which, which represents the presidency is sheltered by a steeper roof than that which shelters the, uh, the executive uh, office officers around the presidency. Um, of course, that then sort of references a Kandyan roof. Yes. Now, that then sort of linked up very easily for me with Asanga's notion, Asanga Varikala's notion, that the 1972 constitution was in fact a majoritarian constitution which uh, pandered to the whims of the majority community. So, in the object that has come out of that conversation, you have an object that is representative of a majoritarian ideal yes. of, uh, of, of, of a majoritarian ideal and aesthetic. And, and then, you know, in um, 78 or 79, I mean, Jeffrey uh, started sketching this. I don't know which year he actually started sketching uh, the, the existing It's part. very interesting that uh, if you look at the existing parliament, yeah. the, the, the pitched roof was not the original roof. Yes. And uh, it was originally, well, it was originally designed for a site, uh, the current parliament was designed for a site near the Bearer Lake. Uh, and the first designs were done uh, in the last years of the previous government. Um, and there was an incredible structure as well that was proposed, which I have seen drawings of, which looked like the Candian crown. Now that's another sort of, really? that, I mean, for a democratic society, uh, mm -hmm. It was quite extraordinary. I mean, it had it had it, it had the eight-pointed crown of the of the last king of Kandy, mm -hmm. um, and and that was one of the designs. But but Jeffrey Bauer's design was very similar to the current design as a series of spaces. It was always the sort of you know uh, unicameral uh, op opposition and government kind of benches type of design, but it had a flat roof. So we found a blueprint that had a flat roof for a design of parliament. And, and somewhere between 1975 or 1976, when that sketch was done, uh, or though may maybe 1977 or 78 when early sketches were done, to, to the time it was finally built, and we did find that drawing, and I think we've lost it as well, where with a biro, there is a hipped roof that comes onto that. Now, whether that happened because the client insisted it should be so, or Jeffrey was reacting to the idea that in a tropical climate and a large building like that, you want to shed the rain, and you really couldn't be bothered with a flat roof and trying to get rain out of it, is something that is, is conjecture because we and, never asked him that And question. the context. So, I, I mean, if you, if you think about it, what uh, a better roof than a Kandyan roof would put a building in context in Sri Lanka? Well, certainly, I mean, if it was, so, if, if it was pandering to a majoritarian yes, aesthetic, yes. yes. That's the roof that so everybody would like to have. So is that sort of a natural, natural progress that, 
because I mean I see you arriving at it and I can see the thought process that brings you to that and Jeffrey possibly did he go through that or was there inspiration? Uh, that, what not sure what, what he went through, that's why I said, so the, the, because there is a moment when he changes from being flat to a pitch roof. No, and I suppose you, you go through the same… Aesthetic. Yeah, and that process because even uh, what you, uh, you see you've done with the 18th uh, amendment where you've got, uh, you know, Daga uh, Chaiti on top and I arrived at pretty much the same thing. Yeah, when I well, I think that it's, 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 I mean, although we name, we call it a daga, but it's really not a daga. It's essentially, not. It, it is, it is, it, it represents a sort of almost a spiritual ideal. It because, is a spiritual you know, it comes idea. from this notion that you stuck an umbrella on top yes. of a mound of earth yeah. when you buried somebody. Yeah. And that's the origin of the stupa. I and mean, it's as simple as that. And so again, we are coming to this, you know, where you arrive at the same design elements. It's a strange... <laughs> that is rather strange, yes. yes you that know? you and I both arrived at it quite independently. And, and the dictators with their details. Yes, that, 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 that's true. <laughs> and this reference to the, uh, micro, the, the, the Apple headquarters, again, I mean, I, I knew, I mean, when you mentioned it, I knew, yes, I know exactly what that building is. But I have to say that when I decided on what form the 18th Amendment's great imposition was going to take, I wasn't thinking of that building. It was, I was looking at this idea that somehow a circle has a, has a way in which it tries to bring things together. It's sort of pulling things together, as it were. And it also has this sense of great weight because it's this idea that somehow you have tried by putting, trying to distribute your weight uh, through your, your provincial council buildings. Now that's not working. Now perhaps if you put lots more weight on the whole structure, perhaps it will stay. Perhaps it will stand. Perhaps it will not move. Perhaps the moving earth will get crushed beneath it and, and, and stabilize. Um, rather foolish idea, but you can imagine someone thinking that way even as a, as, as a builder. Uh, if you put a barra on something or a weight on something, it stays in its place. We put paperweights on things to keep things. So, so there was this idea that let's put some great weight. And I, I, and I sort of identified the 18th Amendment as this effort to put a great weight to hold things together. Um, and that's why I sort of don't, as an architect, I don't see it as, as heinously as perhaps Sanjana would, uh, because he knows the intricacies you of the workings of government. But for me, it's it like, you know, this is an innocent thing. I mean, the poor man, the poor people are just desperately trying to put some weight on the building to keep it together. <laughs> and that's what it looks like. That's what so it that's looks why, like. Yeah, that's what it looks that's like. That's what it looks so like. So it's actually covering up yes. a whole lot of other stuff that's going on, yeah. which you will see if you look into the building and the relationships of space within it in the two or three plans I've attempted to do. But what it looks like is this simple effort to bring everybody together and make them one. Do what a leader should do and who Do what a good come. leader must do, to bring people together. So and the building tries to bring people together and create a single identity yes. to which all of us could perhaps Subscribe to. subscribe to. Yes. Then, you know, you use the word imposition and it's interesting because in, uh, in the work I do, okay. um, so in the work I do, um, 
basically my every effort is not to impose and because I work, you know, I try to give the environment precedence and uh, try to be as uh, minimal on the land and then, you know, then, so it's, it's very interesting, you know, where, uh, because that in itself is a battle. Yes, absolutely, to, 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 to try and keep the environment at bay to just do your minimal intervention. Yes, because if you basically, you know, if you build two steps, you've imposed on the land already. Uh, so it's a huge effort to sort of be um, a minimal weight on the land to uh, not, um, you know, be monumental in any way and let the natural contours take precedence. Of course, someone would say that if someone to have, is to have sort of great governance and proper whatever, you need buildings that do impose, exactly. that do stand in place. But that's not necessary because what brings to my mind is um, the, 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 uh, the, the concept of governance that happens in the Isle of Man where um, they're sort of descendants of the Vikings and the Vikings from Iceland sort of had this thing called the Althing. And the old thing is just a simple space, an open space in which people gathered and they sorted out their business and they went away. And the mound was kept sacred with nobody else touching it, but that's the point at which everybody gathered annually or every week or whenever that they wanted to gather to discuss affairs of state and walked out. And in the Isle of Man, you still have that process where there is a mound of earth where the so-called parliamentarians or the representatives of the people simply gather on the grass, so, discuss what's necessary and leave. And, and I mean that, that would ideally be uh, all one would need but then possibly one needs to use this fantastic tool of architecture. Uh, if you're feeling insecure, vulnerable, to impose, exactly. to deliberately a, impose. Yes. So if, 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 so in, in, a, in a place like uh, a, 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 a system of governance that allows for something like the mound of grass to gather on, yes. it means people who mount that or get onto that mound are those that have actually got the power and representation of the people. They are truly the people who the majority of people want to be there. Yes. And so you don't need the services of an architect to create a facade around them to say that we are now the powerful ones. So and then, then, you, then you, I suppose, what... What I'm suggesting is that really if power emanates from the very grassroots yes. and, and then perhaps... You don't need another is, language. Then you don't need another language, yes. such as architecture, to, 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 to cover up everything that is going on. Yeah, because it's now in some of the, I mean, what I do, uh, the work I do, I try to use materials as a language to, uh, to project, um, maybe, maybe to remove stigma of uh, social stigma, if you use, say, for instance, coconut thatch, which was always associated with, with the poor man's roof, mm. you know. Uh, so everywhere you do use this and there is always control and, you know, you're trying to present something. So here, for instance, uh, say with Villuena where I use coconut thatch for an extremely luxurious hotel uh, to say it's all right, you know, to use... Uh, simple things to... Simple things to uh, actually, um, I suppose, promote luxury. 
And I suppose that's. I suppose that's, in a sense, uh, also chiaroscuro. Yes, she's she's hiding luxury behind something else. So, I mean, that kind of brings to a conclusion what we've had to say about this. Uh, if I think Sanjana will probably take the floor and yeah. get us to shut up, hopefully. Actually not, uh, but maybe also open the floor to any questions that uh, you might have as a consequence uh, of this wonderful discussion. There are two mics on either side. Just please raise your hand. What I didn't mention at the outset was that all of the, uh, the keynotes, all of the presentations, all of the panels are recorded. They'll be subsequently put up online as a podcast, as is usually the case with the exhibitions that I do. So please wait until you have a mic to speak and raise your hand to get one. Please, one in front. Close to the family we begin. Uh. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Um, so you spoke about these hegemonic powers wanting to create boundaries to kind of have this facade to hide the intricacies that were going on and whatnot, and then democratic, uh, democratic design being more organic. And I couldn't help but think of agoras. I know you spoke about the mounds, and still that's kind of an ascension to power with, amongst the people. But when you're talking about the future of democracy and designing for democracy, how would you bring in something like an agora, which was designed to bring people to communicate with each other and the sharing as a community and, and power? I think still the idea of the agora, the marketplace in which you discuss the affairs of your community, is really perhaps the best way of governance you can have, right. where you come together. But of course the problem with even the Greek agora is who was allowed to come into the agora mm -hmm. was restricted. Women weren't allowed, for instance. Yeah. It was only men of a certain stature who were allowed and so on. So the moment you have communities beyond a certain size right. is when architecture begins to come in. Right. So you find that the original agora that is described in, in Athens or wherever yeah. is a very simple structure. It's a stoa, just a sort of colonnade. People met in the colonnade and they discussed the affairs of state and they went home and conducted themselves in a reasonable manner with each other. But as populations began to grow, the agora itself became the agora that we recognize, the sort mm -hmm. of space with a colonnade all round it. Yeah. And while the colonnade appears to be transparent and, and, and everything, um, it was actually excluding people. Yes. So the governance of, of democracy or kind yes. of organized chaos. So then <laughs> comes the idea of hierarchies, where you mm -hmm. need to have the lower level connecting with the next and so on. And how best we can do that to be as inclusive as possible, uh, and architecture can help in that perhaps, mm -hmm. is what we can hope for. Thank you. I mean, There's one at the back, yeah? Just keep raising your hand, otherwise he won't be able to see you. Uh, I just like the response of the two panelists to this, maybe a simple question. What do you think power should be used for? What do you think power should be used for? I suppose that will, what your idea about that sort of flows into what you think, what kind of architecture should be uh, the consequence of that. So that's really the question I want to ask. What do you think power should be used for? Oh gosh, you can use it to chop someone's head off. <laughs> but yeah. really, what is it that 
one wants to use power for, I think in, in the best sense of the word, it would be for the generate, the, it, it's for the betterment, I would think, of a community. And for me, definitely a community and not an individual. Now, of course, some of my friends in the audience would think otherwise, but that's really the case. I truly believe that if you can use power to make the, the, the whole a better, better place, that everybody's lot a better lot, uh, perhaps sometimes at the expense of some of those, some of the sort of things that people might want to do for themselves, which they can do in the privacy of their own selves, mm. but if power can be used for the, for the betterment of everybody, that's perhaps what I think would, would, would go somewhere. But of course, somebody would now turn around and say China's now being a communist or socialist or something. Yeah. Surella, pa well, power ideally should be used uh, for good, but it's not necessarily used for good. It might be that mother who wants, uh, that Sanjana met who wants a child to eat vegetables. Mm. It might be the mother who says to help with that child, let it eat, but tippy tip or something, I want to go out. So it's power, right? And it's how you use it. Uh, it's a, so how would you wield it? How would you? I think that was the question. How, How would you? What would you need it for? Well, it's, I would wield it definitely for me. The priority is uh, the environment because I think if the environment is healthy, the community is healthy. So um, I would use that. So that, that's the thing, you know, it's like that child, you, you, if you have a healthy child, you, it's easy, your life is easier. Hmm. Right? So that's it's hmm. as simple as that, yeah. Rohan, may Mahathir, may uh, there's one at the back, course, so just keep raising it. Vijay, yeah. I, I, I'm happy that this particular picture is behind you as I ask my question. Um, there was this sense that you, architecture has a lot of power and you guys can really shape events. So you're looking for architecture that would foster revolution, architects that would, architecture that would foster democracy, but people can do all kinds of things with the same architecture. Power is everywhere. Power works two ways. Power in different circumstances. So, houseman's streets can be used in both ways. So, why get so excited about it? Well, you get excited because houseman's streets, if houseman's streets hadn't happened, modern day stuff like this couldn't perhaps have happened. So, you get excited because you get excited because Hausman did it for one particular purpose, which was actually to, to impose power, and now that itself is certainly turning the other way. Now, I get excited because it was done for some purpose, and it can happen, it can work the other way. See, architecture is not something that can dictate a specific reaction from people. All it can do, and this is like what I keep saying, I mean, a lot of people think that architecture is the object that is the model that is sitting on those model tables. That's really not what architecture is. That's only a representation of what is inside. What it is, is a series of spaces that are interconnected, which either allow people to meet each other, or keep people away from each other, orient people in the right direction, or disorient them. Now, what people in those circumstances will actually do and this I brought up uh, in my, 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 my first day's talk, this idea of the swarm of flies. I mean, flies will fly in any old direction, like human beings. Each of us is an individual. We just want to be ourselves and do whatever we want. And 
under certain circumstances, we will behave in certain particular ways. So I'm not saying that architecture can be specified and say, look, I am making an architecture that's going to make this country free. But you can create a series of spaces that would give the opportunity for people to perhaps meet and discuss the issues at hand and then perhaps revolt, like this magnificent picture here. Or you can create an architecture that separates people. Like the, I mean, again, I'm bringing back my own experiences in academia where you studied the council houses in London, uh, which were built soon after the war, which actually separated people. And although it was not part of the agenda of the London County Council to do so, the kind of architecture that produced didn't allow communities to gather and meet and perhaps protest their circumstances. They kept them away. So you can create an architecture that keeps people away and stop this kind of thing. Now, how people actually behave is their own way. I mean, we are all terribly individual, terribly selfish creatures. Uh, we, we just do things that are good for ourselves. But as we go along, architecture and other rules as well, like taboos and yeses and noes in each society, will keep us going in one way or another. Architecture is one of those things, and a very powerful thing, that can take societies one way or another. It will act in both ways, because in the end, each of these millions of people is an individual. They thought of only one thing, we don't like what happened. And they stepped on the streets, and the streets just happened to lead to one place, the Place Republic. Now, if those streets weren't connected to the Place Republic, you wouldn't have had this photograph. It's because of the architecture of Paris that you have this. And of course, for me, what's interesting is it was actually built mm. to suppress people. And now in the 20th century, because of whatever reason, that society allows people to move a little bit more freely based on their thought. And here you have this incredible gathering of people with one simple idea in their mind, we don't like what happened. And, you know, it's, as you said, it's, maybe there's nothing to get excited about because it's in the, in the interpretation, you know, how this has turned around. Uh, and if you look at uh, the original thought behind building these huge boulevards to control, uh, to march in the armies, the Candian kings uh, had uh, roads which would allow only two people to pass to prevent armies marching on them. So it is in the interpretation. Vijay. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to both uh, Sunila and Channa for some very thought-provoking comments. I have a question that's perhaps rather more mundane at one level. Um, I think we know um, that some of these issues have been raised in terms of power and architecture have been raised in the history of Sri Lankan architecture by people like Anoma Piris, more recently Tariq Jazil, um, you know, writing about colonial and post-colonial influences, uh, including the singular Buddhist vernacular and its sort of impact on Bhava and so on and so forth. Um, I have um, a slightly more uh, a question that's, that's, that, that brings us to the contemporary in a very real sense. In, in my view, there are perhaps two interesting moments uh, that in terms of the response of the architectural profession to certain developments in Sri Lanka. One is the tsunami in 2004. And I think we saw uh, a response by many architects, you know, who, who tried to intervene in, in, at different levels, in different ways, uh, to respond to this humanitarian crisis. Um, 
And then uh, comes 2009, 2010, when um, the Ministry of Defense and Urban Development embarked on a planned destruction of several thousand homes in Colombo. Uh, unlike in 2004, um, many of us um, who were engaged in working on the question of evictions didn't really see the architectural community come out and say anything very significant even though this destruction was in the name of building homes and new homes that were built and are built and in fact are being inhabited today um, at great cost, I might add, at great suffering in fact also. Um, but one didn't see the kind of engagement uh, from the architectural community. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that the, the professional kind of bodies uh, of architecture uh, you know, quite, quite clearly colluded or at least kept silent uh, you know, in the face of what was happening. So much so, and that's my last point, that attempts to write about these issues inside the, sh the, the SLIA magazine were actually actively resisted. Um, there were attempts to, you know, repeatedly edit down what was written. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up very openly is I think it's one thing to talk, you know, in abstract terms about power and, you know, how we'll use it and so on and so forth. But I think we also need to sort of really confront uh, confronted in the face, you know, in terms of what has happened here in very real, material, physical terms, and questions of responsibility and complicity. Thank you. I, I would like to know, uh, hear Sunila and Chana reflect on, on these. Thank you. We want me to go first. Of course. Well, I think you have to understand that in the, in the case of the tsunami, um, I don't know whether I'm being too brutal, I might get kicked out of the SLIA if I say this, but I probably have to say what I feel. Um, the reality is that architects aren't saints, and they depend on uh, other people giving them commissions uh, for their survival. They're like anybody else. And the reality was in the tsunami, there was a situation in which you could get very generous with your time, because there was possibility of doing work. Because there, was, there were houses that needed to be built, and they had to be built fast, and there was somebody to pay for them. Now, whether the architect got paid or not, some cases they did, some cases they didn't, they gave up their services free. So that was a very easy choice to make. We just simply had to go there and build. And, one, and one of, for me, one of the, my greatest joys is actually to see something built. And there you are, there was something being built, and, were, and you were going to see happy people at the end of it, hopefully. Uh, mm -hmm. Not very really sure all of them were successful. There were some hideous houses that people aren't happy with. Oh, but yes. uh, we did that. It, with the case that you've brought up about the demolition of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the homes in Colombo, again, architects aren't saints. Here was opportunities being made for possibly great projects. And if the architects did come up against it, they would have probably been in a position of not perhaps uh, 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 getting some of those commissions. And as an institute, perhaps uh, they could have been a little bit more vociferous about it. But the reality is that it's a profession that requires the support of money. And that's unfortunate. All of us survive on that. And, that's the, and, and since very few of us are saints, um, we, we probably didn't make the call that we should have made. Um, those of anybody who did, and I think the people who, the person who probably wrote the article, 
um, did it because of their personal conscience, and some of us did do have that, and some of us do have the, uh, the, the, the courage to speak up. But unfortunately, as the institute, they didn't, because they felt that the members' possibility of getting work might possibly be compromised. Because you have to think of it as architects have no other way in which they can actually make money other than by commissions uh, that people give them. Uh, so I'm not making an excuse for the SLIA or anybody else or for the architects, but it's the reality. And all of us are dependent on that. Uh, somebody has to pay you, and in the case of an architect, it's a client. And here, were, here was a situation in which there was a tremendous amount of possible work that uh, was at stake. I couldn't agree more. Um, and actually, in, you know, when the demolition was taking place, I think the, the role of uh, architects were, uh, as a body was probably minimal because the decisions had been made, the housing had already been provided. And I don't know whether one could step in. So if, if they didn't react, it was, uh, and you know, if what Shanna says, is true and it possibly is true, um, the potential work may have been a, a very influential uh, factor. I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a, uh, it, it, it is a terrible thing to have to say. Uh, we are saying that we, are not, we don't have a conscience, but that's the reality. How many of us do have a conscience? I mean, do, how many of us do care, truly? Uh, I know the gentleman there certainly did and must have been part of uh, doing something about it. But how many of us in this room really cared about whether those people were steamrolled or not? Right. We all wanted this beautiful city, this gorgeous city with lovely walkways and clean waterways where we could go for our walks, a wonderful space in which the middle class could live. There, there's one lady in front. Uh, lucky I'll come to you. Because of the architecture of this space, I cannot see anybody on the periphery of it. I can literally only see those in front. So if there's anybody on the sides who has raised, uh, uh, ask a question, please come to my field of vision. Uh, I apologize, I just cannot see you. Uh, but please go ahead, and then after that, uh, the gentleman at the back, Lucky. Um, thank you. Um, I am prepared to be stoned because I am going to take you to the north now. I am going to um, remind you, I just want to remind you whether I don't know how relevant that is to this one, but it is uh, some way related to this. Uh, the post-war monuments erected in the north one uh, at Nandikadal uh, that was unveiled on the 9th of December 2009. That means the venue was closed to the public. Muhammad was closed, Omanda was closed, the whole area, the venue was closed to the public. So Rajabaksa, hyper president, hyper, uh, the symbol of hyper presidentialism has built it and opened it while the UN repertoire for ch child soldiers was in the country examining the camps. Right, that is uh, with a, a AK-47 upheld like this. This is after a war. It should be down there. We know the twisted uh, gun uh, at uh, the UN headquarters. 
this is upheld like this and flagged like this. What does that mean? And then come to the wall, um, then the uh, elephant pass, the big thing, uh, the memorial with the AK-47 there like that. What does that mean? And then uh, that was opened on 30th of April by Gotapaya. And then on the 6th of May the, in Klinachi town on A9, um, a huge wall with a huge bullet stuck on the wall with a lot of cracks and with one crack going up top to, to the top of the wall, uh, uh, flower blossoms. You want people to live with that wall there? What does that mean for the architect or for all of us? And then the tower that was brought down, I don't know, by the ties or tigers or whatever, it is still there. It is an atrocious thing. It is still there as a monument in Klinochi. Um, it is a lot of grass is in that arid northern, northern zone. A lot of grass and a lot of flower pots are there. This um, atrocious uh, the, uh, tower is there. Should it be there in the first place? So there is, um, um, this is a monument. These are all monuments to the hyper-presidentialism of um, Emma. Well, all one can say is they were really extensions to perhaps this uh, thing that I have represented. They were, they, were, they were the sort of long arm of that view. Uh, they were certainly the long arm of that view and, and uh, they, 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 they continue to represent uh, some of those ideals that do not lead to a peaceful resolution to, to issues. Um, but, I mean, obviously they were aimed at a particular section of the community and they were they're certainly insensitive. I mean, I've seen some of them. They are, they are spectacular in their insensitivity. Um, Those are quite and, hideous to look at. And I, I just wish they were beautiful. I mean, they, they aren't. Yeah, they're, not. Uh, they're just not beautiful. I mean, and, and I think a monument, if it's necessary, is actually about remembering the good that might have come from that action. Here it's un un unfortunately not what it's about. It's about reflection and it's not about reflection. It's about excitement. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, Tenu, you could tell us through uh, sort of sculptures, <laughs> artist's viewpoint that if you do a monument, it's really about reflection and not about exciting the, 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 the passions of people. It's about reflection and trying to think about what was bad or good that came out of something. Uh, so it's very unfortunate, madam, that you, you've had, you have, you, 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 you have, that these things happened. And I think, uh, you know, when we do become a mature society, uh, we might have the good sense to, uh, to soften all this and the way we uh, deal with uh, victory and, and defeat. Sorry, we, we really have to move on, I'm sorry. Uh, Lakshman. It's on, Lakshman. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm actually reacting to a previous uh, statement about uh, Colombo being made comfortable and beautiful for middle class to walk about. Uh, personally, I, I'm, I'm a journalist and I, uh, having reported affairs in the country and in the metrop metropolis for a long time, uh, I couldn't quite adjust to this so-called concept of beautification. When my entire career as a development reporter, I have been reporting about development, 
uh, and I still think that Colombo needs a lot of development, not necessarily in a simplistic modernist sense, but nevertheless Colombo needs development. So I cannot relate to your uh, uh, conclusion that Colombo is now beautified and comfortable for the middle class. Uh, it just it doesn't seem real to me. I remember uh, a few months ago motoring down to Hambantota and having visited Hambantota since I was a kid and arrived in Hambantota town with the sea on my right, traveling from Colombo. Now when I go to Hambantota, I reach Hambantota town with the sea on my left. It was completely disorienting. Uh, and uh, having driven through those expressways in the jungle, Hambantota looks even, even more of a decrepit little village than it used to be. Uh, so, for me, I'm not too sure what is meant by beautification and what is meant by urban development. Could you perhaps enlighten me? Thank you. Uh, what I suggested when I said what I said was that this is the vision that some people have of what a city should be. That we think that as long as you make a place comfortable for a particular category of people, then that's really and, 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 and you create a vision for that, that we think that that's really what a city is. You're absolutely right. Colombo need, needs much more than simply beautiful gravel pathways to walk on. There are so many of our people in this city, forget the country, uh, who still don't have a proper shelter over their heads, who don't have proper sanitation, who do not have lots of those things. And you begin to wonder uh, how much of those things are being resolved as much as uh, the external beautification of a city is happening. Um, and, but as, as Sunela said, you know, like that, like that kid who has been forced to eat vegetables, if you have a healthy kid, if you have healthy citizens in a city, then yes, the city will be a better place. And that health doesn't come simply by walking on walkways, but it comes from actually having the basics that anybody needs. And while you can look at Colombo and say, well, there is, it's, 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 it's a much more open, perhaps a slightly more livable city than it was, say, 10 years ago, it has its own, uh, own problems. It has, its, it's, it has, it has very deep-rooted problems, which we are probably not addressing as we should. Um, but I'm hoping that with uh, this new um, megapolis development that's being proposed, uh, and the UDA is sort of working very hard on it, uh, they're thinking of making uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the city into something that's uh, uh, um, sort of a, a, a connoisseur of all eyes, uh, that these basic issues uh, for a majority of our citizens would be, would be resolved. Uh, so what is development is certainly developing the needs of uh, the majority of the community. And uh, unfortunately, um, the beautification doesn't particularly do that. I think the thought, though, might have been that, and, and I'm, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to everyone who did it, that if you made a city physically attractive, that it would lift up the spirits of people who might then sort of react in different ways to make it an even better place for more of its citizens. I'm hoping that that's really what the intention was, and, um, and, 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 and it will actually happen that people will, uh, you know, think of other people while they walk on these lovely places and think, look, perhaps more of the city must be like this and we should work towards it. Um, I think a city is not complete and perfect place to live, 
uh, unless every one of its citizens is reasonably satisfied with their needs, their basic needs. And I, th I think you're also talking about uh, differing definitions of development. So uh, what you might uh, not accept as development was clearly what uh, uh, policymakers had decided was development, and that's, that's just… Yeah, different ideals of it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, there are, there are top-down ways as well. I mean, you know, there are ways in which that kind of development could have knock-on effects. One hopes that that was the intention. It will grow. <laughs> yeah. Time will um, tell, perhaps. Um, one final question, comment, thought? Yeah, I'm just wondering… Um, Who is this? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, just wondering a bit, in the sense of, you know, um, going back to these models and sort of the way forward from here. I mean, having studied political science eons ago, I mean, I can see how useful this will be for students to understand the constitution so much um, better, so much uh, more easily. So just wondering, like going ahead from here, least having listened to Rohan yesterday and him talking about the next a uh, few months, perhaps the next year, being fairly crucial for us in the drafting of the constitution in where we, the role that we uh, sort of uh, civil society plays and not only allow the constitution to be drafted and uh, be only in the hands of the powers that be. What, just throwing out a question to you guys uh, and the architects here uh, as to what the sort of a similar, what sort of role can you play in that? And also a request perhaps that perhaps uh, maybe one thought towards that could be that I know it takes time, I know somebody has to back this, um, it, that requires money, but perhaps as each uh, draft or each whatever comes out, whether that can also be sketched and put out to people, people can do that, as well as, um, I'm sure you, it's already on the cards, but other things that you as architects, as one segment of uh, um, society, the role you can play to prompt the rest of us to also be engaged in the process and take it, take the constitution into our uh, constitution making into our hands as well. Thanks. Well, I, th I think I think it, this is certainly a first attempt. I mean, I've never. I mean, we we don't know, know if architecture has been used to interpret politics and law this literally. As I said, architecture is politics. It's intrinsically politics. But to actually try and interpret a political statement, a political manifesto in spatial terms so that it can be ob something that is not really an object, can be objectified. This is perhaps the first time it's happened. Um, and I have in my couple of days that I've been here uh, felt that it's gone a small way for people to try and understand what has been going on a little better. As I said, I have also seen my own flaws about what I should and should not have done, what has been missed out and so on. I think, yes, it's a great idea to be able to engage in that way. Um, as, for instance, everybody else does. I mean, there would be the cartoonists who'll come up with their cartoons about every comment that is made. Uh, could we as architects um, try to create an objectification of each of those statements, each of those things, so that people can look at it and say, well, ah, yes, that's quite nice, or that's not nice. Will that be useful in the discourse? I don't know. It'll all
probably become clear at the end of this exhibition uh, with the public response to it uh, and whether people have actually had any benefit from it. Um, but yes, I think uh, it's, 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 it's that kid who said, I am not interested in politics. I, I don't think we can not be not interested in politics. Each of us have to be interested in politics because it's about how we are going to be able to live or not live. How free we are going to be uh, to be able to do what we want to do and to be whoever we want to be. And if we are not interested in politics, we have no business to demand anything other than to you know, go under your bed and go to sleep. If we want to live, it's necessary that we are interested in politics. And if architects can do it in some way, in this way or any other way, I think it's our responsibility to do it. And all of us must be counted. I mean, it's necessary that we are all counted. Uh, we can't say so-and-so did it and we had no control over it. Uh, it's necessary that whatever power we have over anyone we have uh, or influence we have must be used uh, and must be brought to bear on everyone who are actually drafting it or drafting the Third Republic's constitution uh, to make it the best we ever had. I mean, we've experimented for 40 years and I think we must have learned something from that experiment and hopefully uh, this interpretation, which is just one interpretation, uh, might uh, be useful in understanding what we might do for the future. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Uh, do hope you can make it for the other sessions. Uh, apologize again for the catalogs running out. Didn't expect this kind of attention or interest in the exhibition, to be very honest with you. Uh, but from day one, uh, from the first evening, the crowds have been quite significant. And the response has been actually quite positive. Uh, people want this to be translated into Singhal and Tamil, which is on the cards. People want this to be taken out of Colombo, which we are toying with, but we'll need the funding for. And also the logistics of moving these models is is, uh, is not that hard, but it's also not that simple either. There have also been, encouragingly, some invitations to take this out of Sri Lanka because it was submitted to me and I know some others that uh, the idea uh, holds resonance in countries outside of, the, uh, outside of Sri Lanka as well, and it will be quite topical and timely for them as well. So it seems to have struck a chord across ages, across the vision impaired, as well as those who can see so uh, I suppose it's uh, what all of us can also do creatively to encourage that kind of conversation that, as Chandra said, and also Rohan said the night before, and Jayampal said the night before that, that as citizens, if you are interested in this process, we can't allow government uh, to uh, run roughshod over us. Uh, whatever they say uh, is uh, what they plan to do, we must, as citizens, engage in the process. And I hope that this exhibition has in some way kindle that interest uh, if you hadn't had it before. Thank you very much for coming this evening and have a pleasant evening. Thank you.